Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning, good morning. It's Tuesday, May the 30th, 2023. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. I hope you had a blessed Memorial Day. I hope you took the opportunity to um, honor and remember those who gave their lives and the ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy, including this one, including speaking the name of Jesus over the airwaves, including being free to um, not only believe, but free to follow the religion of, um, you know, of our heart and free to express that throughout our lives. So freedom to speak and freedom to exercise our religious liberties. And yes, all of the other freedoms that we enjoy as uh, citizens of the United States of America. So thank you to all of those Gold Star families listening right now. Um, we, we honor you. We thank you. We genuinely cannot imagine um, the sacrifice that you have made, but we are grateful for it. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Psalm 119, verses 105 and 106. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. I've promised it once and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. So Psalm 119 is um, the longest chapter of scripture in the Bible, 176 verses. And it's about desiring to know God and desiring to please God. So let me ask, do you desire that? Do you desire to know God and know what God is like and what God has said? Are you spending time meditating on God's word in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments? So that's what the psalmist is up to here. few things to know about Psalm 119. Um, it is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. It's actually uh, similar in length to, let's say, uh, the book of James or the book of Philippians. And the purpose of the psalm is to celebrate God's word. Um, it was traditionally read in its entirety on the Jewish New Year, which is Rosh Hashanah. And the structure of the psalm is 22 stanzas, and each of those um, stanzas starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So we've talked about this before. We've talked about the use of like an acrostic uh, psalm um, where they would use it as a teaching tool. So in the same way that you and I might teach our children or our grandchildren their ABCs, this is a teaching tool for teaching Hebrew children the Hebrew alphabet while also training their hearts to love and desire the Word of God. Um, That is the purpose, uh, the primary purpose of the psalm, to celebrate the very word of the living God. So it's a prayer that includes lots of different elements. Um, So you can't really call it a psalm of praise because although it includes uh, prayers of praise, it also includes prayers of lament or vindication and obedience and petitions for wisdom. So um, you may be saying to yourself, you know, there's something familiar when, uh, when we read 
Psalm 119 verses, verse 105 in particular. Um, and it could be that that's actually like running as a tune in your head. And that's because Amy Grant's song, Thy Word, is based on um, and amplifies this verse of Scripture. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So let your heart song sing today, Psalm 119. It's been suggested that uh, Psalm 119 can function as a tuning fork to calibrate our hearts to the love of God's word. So I pray that you might um, find a way to use this psalm in your life today. Indeed, that God's word would be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Our friend uh, Mark Caleb Smith is going to join us next. We are going to survey some of the political headlines of the day as we bring the mind of Christ to bear here on Mornings with Carmen. You're listening to Faith Radio. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is back. He teaches at Cedarville University. You can also find him at BereansAtTheGate.com and on Twitter, Mark Caleb Smith. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing today? I, I am well. I am well. If you hear a little squeaking in the background, it's because we have a brand new six-week-old puppy, and she's in my pocket. Holy moly. Six weeks old. That's a tiny she's puppy. So, she's so little. Like She's not even as big as like half of a sandwich. I mean, like a sub sandwich. She's bigger than half of like a square sandwich, but she's like as big as like a little six inch sub. Yeah, there you go. What, what kind of puppy is this? She's a little rat terrier and we're, we're going to call her Cinnamini. Like mini, like little mini for short, because she looks like a little cinnamon. She's a little cinnamon shake. Yeah, there you go. That's what's going on at my house. Uh, what's going on with you? First, you know, first week of summer, officially. Uh, first week of summer is going well. Had a good uh, Memorial Day weekend, went to visit some family in Indiana. So uh, it's been good so far. Nice, nice. Back home in Indiana, were you at the uh, 500? I think that happened this weekend. People driving cars in a circle. Yeah, I I was not there. I grew up in Indianapolis, and I've never been to the race. So whatever that means, that's what it is. Yeah, Like it's constantly turning to the left, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's what Mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. um, Here's something, you know, light for this Tuesday morning. Could you help us understand the threat of white Christian nationalism? And does the word white necessarily need to be in that description? Oh, boy, that's a loaded statement. It's big, isn't it? It's big. The threat of white Christian nationalism, yeah. Uh, I mean, if if you're in social media circles um, or if you're a a pretty close observer of evangelical politics the last couple of years, this is a phrase that's been uh, bubbling up to the surface, I think, more and more. Um, And honestly, I I think it's an argument between um, what we would call elites right now. I mean, it's mostly academics. Um, and intellectuals arguing over the degree to which they think America is a so-called Christian nationalist country. Um, And this use of the word threat there, certainly there's a part of the spectrum that sees Christian nationalism as an existential threat, you know, almost as a a movement toward theocracy in its very most extreme sense. Uh, There's been a burgeoning literature on this from uh, sociologists, political scientists, uh, demographers and others, uh, a good bit of uh, surveys have been, a good number of surveys have been done trying to measure the idea of Christian nationalism. Um, I, I think it's I think it's such an abstraction right now. And even if you look at a lot of the survey results, most people that they are, a lot of people they talk to have never even heard of the term right. Christian nationalism um, and really don't have a strong sense of what it means. And so to that extent, I think it is a little bit of a, um, 
of a created problem in a way. On the other hand, you know, I think there probably really is a movement in the United States uh, on the conservative side of the spectrum that does fuse religious identity and political identity um, in a way that probably is unusual uh, in recent American history. Um, but at its heart, and you know, you know, you and I both know we can go way into the weeds on this, but at its heart, <clears throat> it's a desire to see America um, return to, if you think of it in these terms, its Christian roots and that its Christian uh, elements is a fundamental part of the American identity. And so we want laws based on Christian morality. We want a majority of the population to be Christian. Um, and, and we think we, we think of America, when we think of it and describe it to people, we do it in Christian terms, if you think of it in that Christian nationalist sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really the root of it. And I think that's really a good place to start the discussion of it, probably. Yeah, and I think there are um, probably a lot of people listening, saying to themselves and saying to us, back to us on the radio, um, don't don't we want our nation to be governed by um christian principles don't don't we want our laws to reflect the morality that we understand god has delivered unto us um you know through the 10 commandments and um and right. beyond i mean i i guess that's that's part of the yes. i don't want a theocracy i'm not looking um i'm not looking for uh, i i don't have the expectation that everyone in the united states of america is a Christian now, nor is going to be a Christian, nor do I expect non-Christians to act like Christians. And so is that the differentiating point here? <clears throat> I think I think what you said is correct. That I, I mean, as a, as a person who uh, takes his faith seriously and who takes the Great Commission seriously, um, of course I want America to be Christian. And I, I, I can't imagine any other way. I would, I think it'd be wonderful for America to be a Christian nation where a heavy majority of our population uh, is made up of believers, where our government officials are Christians, um, and where our public policies reflect a Christian worldview. I don't, I don't, of course I want those things, but I don't think that makes me or someone who holds that position a Christian nationalist in the way that they are using these terms. Um, mm-hmm. I think what in you the really same way, in the same way that the Modi government is is a Hindu nationalist government. Correct. That's exactly yeah. right. I think, yeah, I think what you really get down to here is to what degree do you think government should coerce religion? That's mm-hmm. really what we're talking about. And I think if you if you think of Christian nationalism and treat it as a serious concept, uh, if someone's willing to use the power of the government to coerce people into religious belief. And we could think of that in many different ways from very severe, like jailing people who oppose Christianity, to very minor, you know, where the government sort of speaks in a Christian voice and encourages people toward Christianity. But that's really, I think, what we're talking about. People who are willing to use government uh, to create an environment that coerces people toward faith. And as you can imagine, even when I use that language, well, I think that runs into conflict with how we view the Constitution. And so how do we view the Constitution's role in this? To what degree... Um, does our constitution require a separation of organized sectarian religion on the one hand and government on the other? And I think that's where really the rub of Christian nationalism is at the moment. Um, how much do people want to use the power of government to get this kind of thing done? Personally, I, I don't want government to really play an, a strong active role in coercing people toward the faith. But I do want America to be a Christian nation. And I don't view those two things as mutually exclusive. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Um I don't want to show up with the cross or the sword. 
Um, and if you right. don't bow to the one, then, you know, I'll right. force you to bow to the other. Like, all right, I'm not. Yeah. So I, I get I get that. So thank you for helping us begin to pull some of those threads and equip us with some some thoughts and some language, um, because I think this is a conversation that's only going to grow, particularly in this next election cycle. Um, I want to uh, I want to turn to that next after a very brief break, Mark. Um, I'd like to talk with you about Peter Weiner's piece in The Atlantic, Four Forces That Bind Trump Supporters More Tightly Than Ever. He's specifically addressing um, evangelical Christians um, who are supportive uh, or even, you know, champions of the former president. And so um, what what binds them to President Trump in ways that um, seem disconnected from evangelical values uh that we might that we might list beyond politics. So we're going to talk with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith about that next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. We're talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith and bringing the mind of Christ to bear on some of the headline issues of the day. Uh, so, Mark, you and I have both read this piece by Peter Weiner uh, in The Atlantic, and he lays out, you know, what really does bind evangelical Christians in particular to um, uh, to Donald Trump. Can you just maybe walk us through these and comment on them as you go? Yeah. Um, Pete Weiner has been a pretty consistent critic of President Trump's, and he's been what you might call a never-Trumper since the beginning of the Trump uh, movement. And so in that sense, this is kind of expected from him. But he argues that uh, people, evangelicals that support President Trump, um, tend to to deny the things, the worst things that he's done. Um, You know, here we might be thinking of his cheating with his spouses uh, or using money to uh, keep porn stars and other people quiet. Um, He argues that Trump supporters catastrophize threats from the left. And I think it's an interesting phrase that they view the threats from the left so largely um, that they can then justify their support for President Trump based upon how much of a crisis the country is due to the growth and the hostility of the left. Thirdly, he says Trump supporters um, trying to portray President Biden as corrupt, and therefore it's a justification for supporting President Trump because effectively uh, they're all corrupt. We may as well support the corrupt one that agrees with us the most, or at least we'll fight for things that we agree with. Um, And then the argument is that Trump supporters uh, on the Christian side of the spectrum see Trump's presidency as really almost an unqualified success. And we should uh, be supportive of him because of that degree of success. Now, I, I mean, I think that uh, personally, and I, it'd be good conversation, I think, I, I think probably the idea that the left is a significant threat to the American way of life is probably the most important one. 
And it's the one that I hear the most when I interact with people who are strong supporters of uh, President Trump's. Yeah, and I um, I had a conversation about this with a, a person who I will describe as a progressive Christian. And I said, let me just try this on you. Do you feel like Biden supporters deny the worst things that he's done? Do you feel like Biden supporters catastrophize the threats from the right? Do you feel like um, Biden and his supporters are frantically trying to portray former President Donald Trump as more corrupt <laughs> than uh, you know, than the current president. Like, do you see what I'm doing? I walked through these yeah, yeah, without yeah. without trying to do like a whataboutism, but really trying right. to see if do the does this resonate on the other side of the conversation? And we we agreed with each other that you know what, there's some resonance here. Like these maybe are just patterns of right. um of the way we are now behaving in the culture as Christians, and and so depending on your particular perspective, um. You are doing these things, just as just a matter of which side of the aisle you're doing them on. Well, I, I mean, I think if you go back to our previous conversation about Christian nationalism, um, people on the left would overemphasize the role of Christian nationalism on the right in order to justify um, their treatment of people on the right. Whereas I think you could argue mm. um, people on the right would probably overemphasize maybe the influence of some of the gender ideology and other things on the left in order to justify their treatment of people on the left. And so it's, I, I agree with you. I think we do see patterns of this on both sides, but as you said, it's hard not to collapse into sort of a well, what about at that point. Um, we should never look at a president and say, well, you know, he's, he's corrupt, but he's on our side. So let's just go with him. It shouldn't matter. You know, who's corrupt. If, if it's corrupt, we should call it out. And we should uh, stand against it and we should do better uh, no matter what side of the aisle it, it might be on. So I, I think Wayner, I think Wayner makes an interesting set of arguments here. Um, but, you know, if the goal is to persuade people, um, this probably isn't the best way to go about it. You know, as you That's said, right. it's probably better to sit down with someone face to face and say, OK, uh, how do you view people on my side of the aisle and where does that come from? And let's have a real conversation about it. But, yeah. you know, I mean, Carmen, this just isn't going away. As you said, you know, the election cycle is coming up. This, these kinds of discussions are only going to get more heated as we get closer and closer to early next year. Okay, uh, we are in an election cycle um, already, and a number of people are already uh, in, in the hunt for the presidency. Let's talk about the issue of age. Should age be an issue? Um, should it be an issue for Senator Feinstein? Should it be an issue for Joe Biden? I heard Asa Hutchinson interviewed um, over the weekend, um, and he was just straight up asked the question. I mean, he is he's now uh, a, you know a candidate for the Republican primary, and you know, and they just straight up asked him, "How old are you?" Which I thought was interesting. Like, I, it's a little bit like asking Tim Scott the the question about being a bachelor. There, it's interesting to me the um, the the penetrating questions that seem very personal that, um, I mean, it's not hard to find out, I guess, how old Asa Hutchinson is, but, um, you know, he's 72. And so, you know, the question is asked, okay, well, you know, add, add a couple of years to that by the time you would become president and then add eight years to that, you know, and you're 80. So, you know, how old is too old? It's an interesting conversation. I just like for you to weigh in on it. I think it is an interesting conversation, uh, but I think we should have it. Um, I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that there isn't a relationship between age at some level 
and ability to do what I think is one of the most demanding jobs in the world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for someone to be 80 years of age or the mid eighties even, and to uh, conduct themselves as an effective president of the United States. I think it'd have to be a highly unusual 80 plus year old uh, who could actually carry that out. Um, and I, frankly, I'm suspicious, but this, as you said, though, this isn't just a question of president Biden or even potentially president Trump. Um, this is a question of people in the Senate uh, this is a question, uh, you know, the average age in the Senate now, Carmen, the average age in the Senate is 65 years old. Mm. That's the average age. So near retirement age is when we've historically thought of that. That's the average senator now. The average House member, 58 years old. And so mm. these numbers are big across the spectrum, not just within the executive branch. Um, and some of this, I think, is just sort of demographic. It's the baby boom generation sort of aging out of the process and still holding on to an awful lot of power. But as our country gets older and as people live longer, maybe we should expect to see more of this. But I think it's a it's a frank discussion that we have to get into. And remind us, the Constitution sets a lower limit, but not an upper one. That's correct. Yeah, there's no limit to uh, there's no upper limit whatsoever. And I would be a little bit leery about trying to set sort of a legal standard. Um, but clearly right now what we're looking at is a, is a wave of politicians where I think you can reasonably question their ability to do the job. And I don't think that's being unfair and I don't think it's being partisan. It's just the way it is. As always, thank you so much for your insights. Um, and, uh, and yeah, for joining us in this, in our first week of the summer, we appreciate it. Thank you, Carmen. Uh, take care to you and all your listeners. I'll talk to you soon. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. You can find him at Cedarville University. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Let's go upwards with Max Lucado. All right, a quick headline here. Uh, for those of you who've been concerned about the debt here in the United States and the debt ceiling, which we have reached, <clears throat> and the negotiations ongoing in Washington, D.C., over the weekend, negoti negotiators did announce that uh, they had reached a tentative agreement to raise the nation's debt ceiling. The deal, which now must be passed by the House of, of Representatives, um, so they have received it, and there's like this 72-hour process, so they could vote on it as early, I think, as tomorrow, Wednesday, will be their 72 hours. Um, but there are certainly members of the Freedom Caucus within the House of Representatives that are threatening to kill it. Uh, and then it must pass the Democrat-led Senate, where progressives are threatening to kill it. So we'll see. The Treasury Department says that June 5 is the firm deadline for action, or the United States will not have the money necessary to pay its bills. Um, the full faith and credit of the United States obviously <clears throat> hanging in the balance here. Um, so I keep assuring you that um, our national leadership is not going to allow the United States to default um, but I also recognize that any kind of deal like this is incredibly complicated and the devil's in the details. And so um, it's all available online if you want to read the whole thing. Um, let me just say this. The current federal debt stands at $31.5 trillion. That's with a T. And um, what the Treasury, U.S. Treasury has in terms of cash on hand right now 38.8 billion which which means that um we're going to we're going to run through 38.8 billion dollars in in literally like no time flat 
it, which that ought to concern us. It ought to concern us that in the bills that the that the Treasury needs to pay on June the 1st, we're talking about nearly $40 billion. So we've got to get our spending under control. Um, this doesn't really get us there, but obviously in a negotiation, n- neither side gets everything that it wants. And so let's just be continuing to pray on this front that a resolution is achieved that retains the full faith and credit of the United States. But also, um, you know, let's be really sober about our spending and, and how we are going to rein it in. We're going to spend um, the, the the next portion of our conversation um, talking about um, who's working and who's working over the summer. Are you working? Or are you not working? How about your teenagers? Who's working in terms of teenagers? And are your local pools open? These are going to be the questions we're going to address here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. uh, Yes. uh, Jim from Connecticut checking in uh, via email to ask me if the text line is uh, working. No. If you text me, I don't even know where it goes. Just into oblivion right now. And so uh, we're working on that. We are assured that the text line will be up and running in a matter of, I don't know, days? We don't know. We don't know. They keep assuring us and we keep saying Thank you. We'd love to have it back up as soon as possible. So um, the text line is not working. And so if you've been texting me and not getting a reply, that's why. It's not that I'm ignoring you. It's that I'm not seeing them. Uh, And so thank you for your patience and your prayers in the midst of this particular uh, technological challenge. And yes, for those of you asking for uh, a picture of Cinnamini, my little six-week-old rat terrier, um, I'm thinking that by Friday... We ought to be able to find a way for you to see her. So maybe we'll do a Facebook Live, if nothing else. Um, so there you go. Thank you for, yes, your concern and interest. <clears throat> the Friday Farm Report this week is going to be really good. You're not going to want to miss it because um, there might have also been four calves that joined our family yesterday. <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a day on the farm. All right, we're going to talk here about the first time you got a job. How old were you when you got your first job? And if, if you grew up on a farm, you're saying to yourself, I have always had a job. My story. Yep. I, from about 10 years old on, I was busy on the farm. There you go. Right? Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So I asked my mom this question and she laughed. So, um, because, you know, they would get up at four in the morning and help milk the cows. Um, I mean, even if your job was when you were little, just carrying the bucket uh, back and forth, um, you know, you had a job. And so this is an interesting conversation about, quote unquote, child labor, And the reason that I'm highlighting it today is because in Iowa, um, teenagers are now legally able to work at an earlier age and for more hours than, uh, you know, than previously the law allowed. So in Iowa, um, Governor uh, Kim Reynolds said, we understand there's dignity in work. We pride ourselves in our strong work ethic, instilling these values in the next generation and providing opportunities for young adults to earn and save to build a better life should be available. So there's a values issue here. There is um, a need for workers here um, in, you know, in the segment of the labor pool where people are willing to work for minimum wage. Um, And and the language here is really interesting where opponents are saying, you know, this is child labor. Uh, The governor is saying these are young adults. 
And so I just I want you to hold that conversation somewhere in your in your mind as these as you hear people talking about this. Is it child labor to talk about 16 and 17 year olds um, working? Is it child labor if we're talking about a 14 year old? Is a 14 year old a young adult? Is a 16 year old or a 17 year old a young adult? Um, when we think about other things that uh, that folks want 14 or 16 or 17 year olds to be able to do or not do or decisions that we think they ought to be allowed to make in the culture, how does this align? So there are some federal standards that allow for um, the employment of people under the age of 18. And some of these states, including now Iowa, that have um, that have widened the the rules related to people under 18 working, um, those states are now in conflict with federal laws. However, it's like half the states in the country that now have laws that are um, more lenient than federal law is in relationship to how old a person needs to be in order to hold particular kinds of jobs or work at particular hours um, or for particular lengths of time. There's a there's another conversation that's a part of this, um, and it's about um, driving. And so as you get to the place where you have a conversation about, let's say, a 14 and a half year old um, working somewhere, it, it it creates the need possibly for that person to also be able to drive. So now let me ask that question. How comfortable are you imagining a 14 and a half year old driving themselves to their own job? Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about that? Well, there you go. There's a conversation for you. And what is, you know, what is a child? Who is a child? We certainly want to be people who protect and guide and guard our children. But what is the definition of a child? Like, why did we pick the age of 18? We actually know their brains aren't fully formed until they're like 25. And there's a lot of adults that's still very childish in the way that they approach the things of life. So what is a child? Who is an adult? An adult? What is maturity? Where, does, where do we draw that line? Um, and why? These are going to be really important questions going forward. And so I just want to commend this, um, this to you. There is this summer... Um, there has been now for a couple of years, but this summer it has reached a, a crisis point in many places across the country, particularly on the coast. But also for those of you who live in places where like every direction is a coastline, thinking about those of you who live in places with lots of lakes, there is a nationwide lifeguard shortage. Jobs, by the way, traditionally held by teenagers, <laughs> including the current president, Joe Biden, who was a teenager when he served as a lifeguard. Um So the YMCA of the North has about 400 spots open across what they call the aquatics program. Um, By the way, the YMCA of the North, that's uh, that's Minnesota. So there's uh, there's like 20 pools right now that don't have lifeguards. Um, And so uh, roughly 80 of the 135 to 150 lifeguard positions um, are vacant. That's just crazy. All right, you got to know if you don't have a lifeguard, you can't open the pool, right? And if you don't have lifeguards who are trained, you can't teach kids to swim. And if you don't teach kids to swim, guess what? They increasingly start to drown. And so um, it's a big deal. It's, uh, it's an issue in Philadelphia. It's an issue in Chicago. It's an issue in Minneapolis. So let me say this. If you um, are a qualified lifeguard, this is a great opportunity for you to serve your community. If you're a qualified lifeguard, certified to do that, um, even if if you were certified 50 years ago, my guess is you could renew that and maybe now you've got time that you didn't have 
um, and you're saying, you know what, I could serve as a lifeguard. I want to spend a couple of minutes applying this to each of us and all of us, um, because the Bible has something to say about guarding our own hearts and also serving as spiritual lifeguards uh, in terms of the world in which we live. So this is an all swim. I'm inviting everybody in now. This is not just for those of you who were certified as actual lifeguards somewhere across uh, the the scope of time, but this is for each of us and all of us. Proverbs 4.23 instructs us, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Proverbs 4.23. That's about guarding your heart. What does it look like for you to guard your heart today? To serve as your own like lifeguard in terms of guarding your heart. And then what does it look like to cooperate with the Holy Spirit who is right there in you, present and active, just waiting to be invited to stand guard over your heart. And then what does it look like to be, let's say, on our guard or to stand firm in our faith, to be courageous, to be strong in the words of 1 Corinthians 16, 13? Because as a Christian, like each and every one of us, you know, we are called to serve as spiritual lifeguards. Here's some of the ways that I think about that. We are called to stand ready to rescue and serve as agents of grace in the lives of others. And you might know nothing about lifeguarding beyond maybe what you saw on Baywatch. But even if that's all you know, then you know that guards arrive early um, to train before swimmers arrive. They survey the water. They check the conditions. They put out warning flags and signs. They swim They practice rescues. They paddle the surf. They run in the sand. They train their bodies. They train their focus. They train as a team. And lifeguards stand ready to rescue others because they're prepared. Like, are you prepared as a Christian to enter into the life of a drowning sinner in the culture today? And you would be sufficiently trained in godliness to reach out a hand of rescue. Not offering yourself, by the way, not offering yourself, but offering Christ. Um, Spiritual lifeguards train in God's word, train in prayer and song, train minds for action, um, and function like a team, which I think is important as well. And then spiritual lifeguards also need to be focused. I mean, you know, like lifeguards out there on the beach, right? They stay alert. They stay focused. Um... They're, they're scanning all the time, scanning, scanning, scanning for threats, keep their eyes focused on the people. They also keep their peripheral vision focused on threats that might emerge from beneath. Um, so as a spiritual lifeguard throughout your day, you know, are your, are your eyes up? Are you looking around? Are you focused? Are you alert? Are you recognizing that the enemy is prowling around every moment, not only looking for a way to devour you, but looking for a way to devour others. Do you have your eye on the spiritual rip currents of the day? I mean, do you know that there are rogue waves? Do you know how to identify them brewing on the horizon and call people away from the edge? Do you know how to see threats even as they're swimming just beneath the surface? And then into that conversation, ask this question, what are the things, Lord, that tend to distract me, that pull me away from this mission of serving as a spiritual lifeguard in the days in which I live. 
Friend, you need to be on your guard against distraction, and so do I, in order that we can be on the lookout for people who are in distress or in danger, and that we might be close enough to the fire to snatch them out. And then we got to be ready at any moment, at any hour, in any minute. Be ready to go and rescue like a lifeguard who's rushing toward the water in order that one might be saved. When we're drowning, help has to come from the outside. We can't save ourselves. But let me remind you that when you go to rescue someone as a lifeguard, you do not hand them yourself. You hand them some kind of flotation device. Because if you try to give someone yourself to hold on to, they're going to panic. And they're likely to drown you. So you swim out with rescue equipment. And so as Christians, as spiritual lifeguards, our rescue equipment is the gospel. We don't go of ourselves or by ourselves. We give people the gospel. We tell the drowning person, grab on to this. It has saved me. It can save you too. My friend, Jesus is the only one who can ultimately save. And Jesus has invited and sent us to join him on a rescue mission this summer. And so as spiritual lifeguards, we know that every single person needs to be rescued from sin. There's a serious lifeguard shortage in the world today. Are you on the team this summer to serve as the one, to serve the one who came to seek and to save the lost? Like, are you in? I am. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up. They come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized, and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Two months and three days. Two months and three days. It was March the 27th that third grader Haley Scruggs was one of six people killed during a mass shooting at the Covenant School at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. That's two months and three days ago. When, um, when does the pastor of that church, the father of Haley... Return to the pulpit, and what does he say? Um, Haley's dad uh, returned. His name's Chad. He uh, he returned to the pulpit of 
Covenant Presbyterian Church on Mother's Day because he wanted to address the reality of the grief of not only his own wife, Haley's mom, but the moms um, of others and all of the ways in which the congregation as the family of faith has been affected. And and so the Mother's Day sermon, which he used uh, John chapter 19, verses 23 to 27 as his text, uh, and he started off by talking about love and how much gratitude and love he and his family have for this congregation. It was emotional. If you watch the sermon or listen to it, you can hear the emotion and you can see the emotion um, Chad said, uh, we loved you before March 27th, and we love you even more now because of how you have loved us, and we thank you. Um, he confessed that when he and his family are asked how they are doing, he said, look, it's not a bad question, but we don't know how to answer it. He said, I'm searching for a new baseline in life right now. Um, And then, you know, he acknowledges that he and his wife, Jada, have three other kids. Haley was the youngest in their family. But, you know, you're still a dad and a mom to three little kids. And summer has begun. And there's an expectation that there's going to be, you know, a trip to the beach or the pool or to vacation Bible school or summer camp or summer vacation. Like, at some point, you have to do the things that a family does, even though, as he describes it, you are living without a limb. He talks about this loss like an amputation. It's like the loss or the amputation uh, of an arm. We're learning to live with a part of us missing. From our perspective now, it feels impossible to ever pretend that that arm is going to regenerate or ever feel whole this side of heaven. We are learning to live with sadness, and that's okay. It's okay to live with sadness, he said. He talked about the gift that the congregation um, has been, uh, noting all of the ways that people have um, loved them so well. Hugs, cards, text messages, meals, flowers, prayers. He said, you have showed up to suffer with us, which is an acknowledgement um, that love under the shadow of the cross is often best expressed not with words, but in presence. And that's the not, not gifts, but physical, like your physical presence with someone. And tears. Talked about the grieving process. And he, um, he talked about C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed. He said um, there's a few lines there that stand out to him. There's nothing we can do with suffering except to suffer it. And there's no device which will make pain no longer be pain. It's only been a couple of months. And every single day, this family and so many families across the country are getting up in the dark. Pointing to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, Chad Scruggs said, I'm trying to walk without fainting. 
and I'm grateful that we've never felt alone. He talked about the women at the cross. That's the subject matter of John chapter 19. He talked about the women at the cross. He talked about those who stay by Jesus in his moment of horror. He talked about the faithfulness of remaining in the midst of the pain and the agony of very real loss. He says, John lists the names. History will not forget the faithfulness of these women who came to be with Jesus in his darkest hour. And then he said, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He quoted from Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, and noted that death itself cannot tear us apart. It's a lesson in getting up in the dark because we know the risen Savior, because we know the promise and the power of God over not only sin in life, but death as well. In life and in death, we belong to God. Who needs to hear that encouragement today? And who needs you to just show up in the midst of their darkest hour? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. What is the Lord showing you? What has the Lord shown you in the last few days? What has the Lord shown you in the last few weeks or even the last month? You know, it, it occurs to me that when we think about, you know, two months and three days, um, or we think about between Memorial Day and Labor Day, like, do we have the expectation that God is going to reveal himself and reveal his will to us, that we're going to see and experience the reality of God's presence and his provision, his people, his plan? Are we going to engage in the mission into which we have been called as agents of grace and ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors of the king and the kingdom? Or is Labor Day going to come and we're going to say, oh, you know, that's that's, uh, three months ago that we had this conversation about, I don't know, spiritual lifeguards or getting up in the dark, whatever you've heard today that we've talked about that might be sticky for you. Maybe it's Psalm 119. Maybe the stickiest thing that we've talked about uh, in this hour together is that we need to be in the Word of God, that the Word of God might get in us, that when um, we're challenged and in conflict and under duress, when we're drowning, we have a firm foundation upon which to stand up, and it's not sinking sand. It's Jesus Christ himself and the very Word of God made flesh to live and dwell among us, full of grace and truth. Are you standing in Christ and on Christ today? If not, grab hold of him. He has saved me and he can save you too. We've got another hour together next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.